All right. Session number two, Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you're already here with us. I thank you that you've given us your spirit. He resides in us. He's been sealed in each and every believer. And Lord, he leads us. He grows us. He changes us. Uh, you, Holy Spirit, are responsible for washing us clean, for convicting us, for transforming us to look more like Jesus. I pray that tonight you would do just that. Make your words come alive in Scripture and teach us and grow us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, glad you're here tonight. Uh, so we're on page eight, session two. Uh, last week we talked a lot about the person of the Holy Spirit. Tonight we're going to focus on a lot that concerns the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to start with seeing how the relationship is between the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and what the Bible tells us about that relationship between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, near the end, there's a section there where it talks about the armor of God. Probably a lot of you are familiar with that, right? You've probably read that at some point. Well, as you go through the armor of God section, it talks about uh, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, it talks about the shield of faith. It talks about the, that you should have like your, your feet covered with the, the preparedness uh, to share the gospel. So it has all these different things. And the majority of them, the helmet of salvation, they're all defensive in nature to protect you. I mean, almost all those descriptions are defensive in nature. You're given one weapon, according to this passage. And the one weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So just notice how closely those two things are connected. This word is considered the sword of the Spirit. So if the Spirit's not involved, it's not as powerful as it should be. If the Spirit's involved, but the Word isn't involved, it's also not as powerful as it should be. What we see is the Spirit of God and the Word of God working together to be our offensive weapon as believers. So that's a, a huge thing. So the little sentence there says, the Word is the offensive weapon of the Spirit. The Spirit is active in sharing and receiving of God's Word to the accomplishment of the Lord's desires and purposes of that Word. Hebrews 4.12. In Hebrews 4.12, it says the Word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the Word of God is living and the Word of God is active. Now, we know, humanly speaking, these are printed words on pieces of paper. But when the Holy Spirit is the one who's inspired them, he illuminates them, and he's the one who takes them and uses them to change us, they're not just words on a page. They, they are literally living and active because the Holy Spirit is involved with each and every word, using it to accomplish what God desires for it to accomplish in the person and in his world. So these words are truly living and active because the Holy Spirit is involved with the writing, the understanding, and the work of the Word of God at all times. It is through the work of the Spirit that the words jump off the page and are applied to the heart and the mind of the believer. The Word of God is always accompanied by the power of God because God the Spirit is present. Okay. Now, this list right here below, 
Somebody showed me this reality back when I was in college, and I had never noticed it when I was younger, just reading the Bible on my own, because a lot of these passages come from different places. So until you put them together like this, it's really easy for this to go unnoticed. So listen to the role of the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, and then listen to the role of the Word of God, according to Scripture. Stephen, could you close this door? Do you mind doing that? Um, so it's the Spirit of God that convicts us. The Word of God convicts us. The Spirit calls us. The Word calls us. The Spirit produces faith. The Word of God produces faith. The Spirit gives life. The Word gives life. We're born again of the Spirit. We're born again of the Word. We're washed by the Spirit. We're washed by the Word. We're sanctified by the Spirit. We're sanctified by the Word. We're justified by the Spirit. And we're saved from wrath by the Word. We're made free by the Spirit. We're made free by the Word. We're strengthened by the Spirit, and we are strengthened by the Word. Now, those passages aren't like one verse after the other, but you see, as you look through Scripture, crazy similarity. Okay? So oftentimes, as the Word of God's going forth, it's the Holy Spirit who's enacting it. Okay? As the Holy Spirit goes forth, he's using God's words to accomplish God's, entire, God's desire and intention with those words. So just... Realize that as you're spending time in God's word, you're interacting with the power of God because the Holy Spirit is involved with the process of using those words to grow you, to shape you, to transform you, and to change you. If that's true, and the Bible says that it is, there's a couple of things that stick out to me. One, if I'm going to go into these words and the Spirit of God himself is involved with making them active and living and functional in my life, I'm going to talk to him before I start reading it. I will sit down, open up the pages and say, Holy Spirit, I recognize you're here. Holy Spirit, will you please work in and through these words to help me understand you better, convict me where I have sin, and change me and transform me to look more like Jesus. Like we talk to him because this is a relational time. When I'm in God's word, I'm involved in this relationship with the Lord through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of God's word and the function and role of his spirit. Also, if these words are actually living and active, if these words are my offensive weapon against the things that the world's coming at me with, I'm going to dedicate myself to knowing them. I'm going to dedicate myself to meditating on them, learning them, the big themes and the little details. Everything matters because the Word of God is so primary and so important. So just this list makes those couple things stick out to me. Let's go to the next page. Page nine. So the Word of God is active with the... The Spirit of God is active with the Word of God, but the Spirit of God is also active in our conversion and he's active in our sanctification, that is, the growing and transforming of us spiritually to be more like Jesus. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, according to John 16, 8. And this conviction is true of both the unbeliever and the believer. The Holy Spirit effectively is revealing the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and mankind. So God is always, the Holy Spirit is always convicting us of our sin. Even the world itself, even though it denies it and pushes it away, the normal human being has some level of guilt for the things that they think, the things that they do, and the intentions in their heart. 
The Bible says in Romans 2 that the law of God is written on the hearts of men. So even if people who don't know the Lord don't read scripture, there's a sense in which they know right and wrong. And the Holy Spirit uses that to convict even those who don't know the Lord. And those of you who do know the Lord, he uses those same words to convict us too of where we err and rebel against the Lord. This next section is interesting. It says in 2 Thessalonians, I'll read it. It says that the Holy Spirit plays a role in restraining sin in the world. It says this, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and only he, that is the Spirit of God, who is now the one who's restraining, he's going to continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. There's a day, there's a day yet to come when God's going to allow all wickedness and evil just to, to land, okay, to, to be unrestrained. But at the moment, God's actually restraining those things by the power of his spirit. Now, so what that means when it comes to how I think about God in my times of suffering, that affects me in a radical way. In our times of suffering, so often we'll look to God and say, you are unfair. Why would you let this happen? This thing that is overwhelming to me, why would you let this come into my life? Why didn't you keep this out of my life? Why didn't you hold this back? If we really understand this verse, then we would come to the understanding and realization that God is holding so much back that you're experiencing 5% of what you could be suffering. Like, I don't know what the percentage is, but like there's so much that you could be suffering from that you're not because he's restraining so much from you. It's like he's got this, it's like a dam holding the water back, holding the rushing waters from consuming you. And you're complaining that your head got a little bit wet. Now, I'm not minimizing suffering. Suffering is huge and suffering is real. But we have no idea and no concept of what it really could look like if the Holy Spirit didn't restrain wickedness, evil, and lawlessness in the world. Because suffering comes as the result of sin. So if sin was unrestrained, we would suffer just by nature and what we do to one another. Because oftentimes suffering comes from that. So all that to say, next time we, you, I, go through a hardship, some suffering, be slow to point the finger at God and be frustrated. Be quick to point the finger at God and say, thank you. You let that through for my good, but you restrained so much from me also for my good. So in times of hardship, remember, a thankful heart is an appropriate response to a God who's restraining so much suffering from actually landing directly on you. Okay, does that make sense? All right. Another reality is that without intervention, according to scripture, man will by nature reject the things of the spirit. Man in and of himself, his tendency, his propensity, what he is most likely to do, what he by nature does, is rejects the things of God and rejects the things of the spirit. There's a couple of verses that talk about that. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but a natural man, that is a man who doesn't have the spirit of God, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So someone who doesn't have the spirit, spirit can't understand the things of the spirit. 
Like, if I took you and dropped you off in the middle of some part of Asia, there's a good chance you would walk around and you wouldn't know what they were saying. Because it's a completely different way of thinking, it's a different way of talking, it's a different language, different syllables. When the Spirit of God is speaking and someone doesn't have the Spirit of God, it's like another language. There's no ability to comprehend, apprehend, or understand what the Spirit is actually doing or saying. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. So you and I look at that cross and we say there isn't anything more beautiful than what Jesus did on that cross. The Bible says of someone who doesn't know him, that person looks at that same cross and they say, what a fool. Why would he have done that? What a fool. So without the Spirit working in some form, in some fashion, there isn't much hope for an individual who doesn't have the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then does go into action. The efficacious work of the Word of God. So the word efficacious, I'm not sure if it's really a real word, but when you read theology books, they always like to say the word efficacious. Like I looked it up, I think you were the one, Roz, that pointed that out to me. It may not be a real word, but it's, I see it all the time. So let's just assume that it means like the effective work. But we'll, but we'll pretend to be really theologically astute. The efficacious work of the Word of God comes through the work of the Spirit. And it is the hearing of this Spirit-filled Word that is necessary for salvation. Here are some verses. Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. Now, the words of the gospel are powerful because the Holy Spirit is working in and through them to change the hearts of men. Romans 10.14, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? So the Holy Spirit here doesn't go ahead of the word of God and just change people's hearts. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God. Did you catch that? That's big. Because God has the power just to change people's hearts. But the way he chooses to work is through the spoken word of the gospel. The passage there in Romans 10 goes on to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So there's great joy to be the person who's sharing the gospel, but the gospel is only heard, seen, and received when the Holy Spirit is involved. But the Holy Spirit doesn't get involved unless the Word of God is also a part of it. So again, we see that whole concept of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working in conjunction together to make it effective. Romans 10:17 says, So belief comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Okay, we'll skip that quote. So John 3 3 through 8. You guys are probably familiar with these verses, but it says that we must be born of the Spirit. And this being born of the Spirit only comes from the Spirit. It is those who are born of the Spirit that look on Christ and believe. John 3, 15. Okay, so here we could go into a big debate trying to figure out how much of this is us choosing God and how much of this is God choosing us. We don't need to do that now. In a month and a half, I'm going to come in here during our salvation uh, study, which is the next core class, and for half an hour I'm going to pretend like I'm on one side, and then for the other half an hour I'm going to come in and pretend like I'm on the other side. I might even change shirts or something, or wear a hat and be the second guy. And I will argue tooth and nail for one position, I'll come back in, I'll argue tooth and nail the other position. So that day will be fun, but that day is not today. But here, we at least know that the Holy Spirit has some huge role in having us then be born of the Spirit. We didn't bear ourselves. But even when you were physically born, you didn't have much to do with that. I mean, next thing you know, there's a bright light, someone's spanking your butt, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. 
you didn't have much to do with that. Being born of the Spirit is something the Spirit was the primary person, the primary force in place making that happen. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In other words, there's nothing you did that was good enough to save you. Not a thing. But according to his mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit washes us. That concept there is washing us of our sin. He regenerates us. The concept there is like going from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Have you ever seen one of those like those AED things or one of those things that shock your heart? Like if your heart shuts down, it's like zap. And then you're like, I mean, you're up again. It's kind of like that. Like the Holy Spirit takes something that is dead and awakens it, revives it, regenerates it, makes it alive. And the renewing by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. So he's the one who births us spiritually. He's the one that washes us clean. He's the one who regenerates us. He's the one who renews us. And then he's sealed inside of us. And this concept of a seal is a permanent situation. Remember in the Old Testament, we talked about the Old Testament saints. They would receive like a filling of the Holy Spirit oftentimes to accomplish something or for a moment in time that was crucial at the point of history of the nation of Israel. Here, everyone who places their faith in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit permanently. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit forever. From now until you see him face to face, the Holy Spirit lives in you. We've all been given the Holy Spirit, securing our salvation until the day of redemption. So, let's talk about the implications of that for a second. If that's true, if your brothers and sisters in Christ have the same portion of the Holy Spirit residing in them that resides in you, I think there are some implications there. A couple of them might be. Uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of your brother or sister is the primary one who's going to grow, change, and transform that brother or sister. So if they're not growing in the way that you would prefer for them to grow, if there's certain things in, your, in their life that really annoy you, if there's certain things that you keep telling them that they don't seem to get, the Holy Spirit is the primary person who's going to sanctify and change that person. You can encourage, you can be gentle, you can be kind, and you can instruct. The Bible calls us to do those things. But ultimately, it won't be your words that change the person. It'll be God's words and God's spirit that change that person. So, you and I can't get so frustrated that we withdraw from people because they're not growing in the way that we'd like them to grow. We can't be judgmental against those people because they don't understand the things that we want them to understand. We're not in a position to judge how well the Holy Spirit is doing in growing a particular person. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, has certain ways that he's going to grow that individual, certain relationships they need to have, certain experiences they need to have to radically change who they are to look more like Jesus. So you and I don't get to get mad, frustrated, angry, or go off on brothers and sisters in Christ because they're just not living up to your standard. It's hard, though. I mean, I can think of multiple instances in my mind where that is hard for me with certain people in my life. 
I'm so tired of watching them make that same bad decision over and over again. It affects them, their family, and even affects my family because I'm in a relationship with them. But you say your piece, you present God's word, but you don't continue to harp on them. You don't continue to go after them. You let there be room for God's spirit to do God's work. Okay, so there's just, there's a level of patience and humility that we have to have knowing that each brother and sister has the same person driving their bus that's driving your bus. And he knows where he's going. He knows every turn in the road. So we have you I could make the assumption that if it's the Holy Spirit that is growing you and me, and I'm willing for the the Holy Spirit to grow me, and you're not willing for the Holy Spirit to grow you, mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit is not going to override your will to mold you into Christ if you don't want to be molded. So the question is basically a question of, we mentioned before, like when we become a Christian, how much of the role or how much of that decision is us choosing God? How much of that role is God choosing us? In the same way, you did a good job pushing that question just to the next phase of being a Christian. How much of growing in Christ is God working in and through us because he chooses to? How much of God working in and through us is us giving God permission to work in and through us? Where can we just say, I don't feel like growing there? And where does God say, I'm growing you there? I'm just going to grow you there without asking for permission. And that's a really good question. Um, we're actually going to get to that. I think we're heading that direction. But that's, that's a big question, not a little question. It's probably a whole core class all by itself to answer that question. But we're going to tap on it as we go. Sorry if that doesn't make you. I feel like I'd like to give you more right now, but this, that's where we'd be the whole night. So, <clears throat> but good question. Next page. So the Holy Spirit is intimately involved with our growing and growth and transformation as a Christian to look more like Christ. I could have taken this section and just kind of gone to tons of different verses and put together a big list of verses of what the Spirit does in our life, but I just went to Romans chapter 8, because Romans 8 is such a beautiful section describing the life of a Christian who's growing. Someone who realizes that they want to be more like Jesus, Romans 8 is a beautiful passage describing that process. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 3 through 17, and I just want you to listen to it. But as you're listening to it, you can mark in your Bible or just mark in your head all the different places here where you see the Holy Spirit at work in our lives to grow us and change us. I'm going to read the NAS. Uh, you'll probably have something similar to what I'm reading. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for our sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind, is set, the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, nor is it even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, or but, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will then live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So as we look through that, several things stick out. One, we walk according to the Spirit, our mind should be set on the things of the Spirit. We are described as being in the Spirit, verse 9. According to verse 11, we are given life by the Spirit. We live by and are guided by the Spirit, putting de- to death the deeds of the flesh. Remember the life of Christ? He was guided by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the same way that you and I are to live our lives guided by, led by, the Holy Spirit. He helps us to cry out to our Heavenly Father. The Spirit gives us confidence and security that we are indeed sons of God and in Christ. That quote says, Sanctification can be ours only by means of the resources of Christ. In other words, you don't have the resources in you to spiritually change yourself. The only means we have are the resources of Christ which are brought to us through the Holy Spirit as he takes what is Christ's, reveals it to us, and then conforms us more and more into Christ-likeness from one degree of glory to another as we gaze on the glory of the Lord. In other words, the Spirit takes the, the resources of Christ and he then applies them and gives them and shows them to us, which is how he then grows us. Okay? Beautiful, beautiful thing. So the Spirit also in the life of a believer, helps us to pray. If you're in Romans 8, we're just going to go a little bit farther. Verses 26 and 27. I'll go ahead and read those out loud also. It says this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we're at the place where we just don't even know how to pray, there are no words to express. That could be a moment of grief, of suffering, of pain, or of great joy. In both cases, sometimes you get to the point where you just don't have the words to express what you feel, what you think, and what's going on. You just don't know how to respond. In those cases, the Spirit of God works in and through you to pray and intercede and to speak to the Father on your behalf. It's an amazing thing. So there's never a point where we can't be in prayer. Even when we get stuck, the Holy Spirit is willing to intercede for us. It says through groanings, okay? This isn't a verse speaking about like, languages or tongues. This is just a verse saying, you just, even this, those little groanings and sounds that we make, God knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. And the Spirit is interceding even in those moments for you, through you, 
to God the Father. Powerful. Let's go to the next section. The Holy Spirit plays a primary role in the inspiration and illumination of Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians. You can go there with me if you have a Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 13, says this. For to us, God revealed them, Scripture, through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in who's taught, but who's taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual things with spiritual thoughts. Okay, so we see there that the Holy Spirit plays a primary role in helping us understand the words of God. If we went back to just how the word was written, we give credit to the Holy Spirit for playing a major part in inspiring the words themselves. When I say illumination or the doctrine of illumination, what do I mean when I say that? What does that mean when I say the Holy Spirit illuminates God's word? Any idea? I would say make it known to me. Make it known to me. Good. It's like turning the light on, right? Like it's like it's dark and you can't quite see, you don't quite get it. He turns the light on. Now you can see it and there's clarity. So it brings clarity and understanding to God's word. So the Holy Spirit helps us in that. Uh, let's go to John. And we're going to stay in John for a little bit. John 14. 14, 16 says this. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Verse 26 of the same chapter says this. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said. So even when Jesus was speaking, there wasn't like a bunch of minstrels on one side of him. And then, a, you ever seen the Holy Grail? There wasn't a bunch of minstrels with coconuts on one side. And there wasn't like a couple scribes on the other side writing down everything he said. There was a short period of time there was actually oral tradition. So the Holy Spirit was the one who made sure that they could pass on what Jesus said correctly so that when it was written down, it was written down accurately. But not only did he control the process, he's also the one who allows us to understand what Jesus has taught. So he did both. He preserved the text, helped write the text, and then he illuminates or teaches us what it means. All those things are true. Now, in this verse, uh, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it talks about the Holy Spirit. Mine says, but the helper. What does yours say? Comforter. Comforter. Advocate. Advocate. Okay, so there's several different ones. The word there is, is derived from the word paraclete, okay? The word right there is parakletos, I believe. But what's interesting here with this word is that it's not, it's not a word that's so simple that we can put just one word down to explain everything that it means. So mine says helper, some said comforter, some said advocate. The word itself in the form that is found here in verse 26 is actually in the passive 
passive. So, so kind of what it, so it kind of actually means this. He's one who is called alongside. Jesus says that I'm leaving, I'm no longer going to be by your side, but him, I'm sending him, and he'll be by your side. He'll be by your side. It's like a, it's a passive reality. He's just, he's just going to be there. He's going to be in your life. He's going to be by your side. But from the word itself, um, like a, a paralegal, okay? So like this word oftentimes in the New Testament has to do with like a legal situation. The idea of an advocate, okay? Like someone legally advising you, legally protecting you. This word itself, when it's used in other places, has that concept behind it. So even though it's passive here, the one who is then called alongside passively, because of the word itself, we go ahead and translate it advocate, which has kind of like a, this, this legal idea. Like he's going to take care of me. He's going to stand in my place and he's going to make sure right is done and wrong is done. In the Old Testament, so in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew version. There's also a version called the Septuagint, which is the Greek version. Oftentimes, Jesus quoted from the Greek version of the Old Testament, like 70% of the time. When this word was used in the Old Testament, in the Greek, it oftentimes had to do with consoling someone. Consoling someone. So if we kind of go and use this word and go back to the way it was used in the Old Testament, it sounds a lot like comforter, or one who will console, or counselor. So sometimes that will be translated counselor. So there's a lot going on here. So to like fully translate this word, it would look like not one word. It might look like something like, uh, but the, the one who is called to be alongside you forever is one who will protect you legally. He'll be your advocate, but he'll also console and comfort you as your helper. And then continue on. But they didn't do it that way, right? They just put one word for one word, which is how you're normally going to translate something. But it was like a thought for thought. It might look more like that because all of those truths are part of what that word that description means. And that's why some of them say comforter, some say helper, and some say advocate because of that. So all those translations are correct, but they're only just pieces of what's like a bigger puzzle of all that that means. That's kind of fun, right? A little bit of a rabbit trail, but that's cool. Well, I think it's cool. So I, I think that's neat. All right, rabbit trail over. Uh, 1526 says this, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So in these verses, it's very clear that the Holy Spirit is playing a huge role in making sure that the Word of God is written correctly, that they remember what needs to be written down. But he's also playing a major role in making sure they remember and understand what has been written. So he's doing both. Uh, let's go ahead and jump to the next page and go to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, this is a good one to actually look at. Ephesians chapter 4. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, but when I get to verse 3, I want you to really pay attention to what the Holy Spirit has done according to verse 3. Verse 1 says this. This is Paul speaking. Therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
there is one body, one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. So according to verse 3, is it your job or my job to create unity? Look at verse 3. Is it your job and my job to create unity? Is that what it says? What does it say? Keep. So keep or preserve or maintain is usually how that's translated. So we don't create the unity. It's the Spirit who created the unity. You just need to preserve what the Holy Spirit has already accomplished and given to us. So it's not our job to create unity. It's just to preserve the unity that the Holy Spirit has already given. How did he give us unity? Well, it goes on and shows us. We can be unified because we have, we're one body with one spirit. We have one hope of our calling with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Because those things are true for every single believer, the Holy Spirit is simply, he's given us unity. As long as we center ourselves around those big things, the little things don't seem quite as important anymore. How do we do as a church? I'm, we can talk globally, but let's also talk personally, locally. How do we do as a church of valuing the big things as the most important things and making sure that the little things never get involved with creating disunity? How do we do with that? Not real well? What do you all think? Everybody's moving their heads, but nobody's talking. The, co the color of the carpet is important. The color of the carpet is important. <laughs> thank, thank you, Norm. Well said. So, according to this passage, when we major on the majors, that's a great way to preserve unity. When we major on the minors, that's a great way to create disunity. So it points here to the things that are most important about you. If you're sitting across the table from a brother or sister in Christ, and they disagree on a small point that's actually debatable in scripture or in politics or in finances or in any part of life, you still have in common with them. You're part of one body. You have the same spirit. You have the same hope. One day you both plan on seeing Jesus face to face, and that's all that should really matter. You have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father who is God and Lord over all, through all and in all. Like, that should be enough. And even if you vote differently, or you don't like the way the chairs are set up, or you don't like the way somebody said something, or the way somebody looked at you, you can probably still have and preserve unity. So, one of our goals as we're thinking about trying to lead the church, and hopefully one of your goals as you're helping us move forward as the church, is how can I go out of my way to preserve the unity? So that's a call to you and to me. You don't have to create unity, but we have to preserve it. What would be some ways that you can practically help preserve, maintain, and keep unity here in our church? What are some things you can do? So you'd have to continue to make sure people know these are the most important things. Good. What else? Keep forgiving over and over again the way Christ forgave you. What else do we need to do? Don't sweat the small stuff. There's a lot of people here. You're just, we're not always going to get all of our preferences. All right? Um, 
I can go in a lot of directions with that. I'm not going to. Any other thoughts that you have instead of thoughts that I have? Mm. That's a good point. Even the people that do sweat the small stuff, it's our job to continue to love them. Practice That's good. The fruit of the What'd you say? Practice the fruit of the spirit. Of the fruit of the spirit. What might that be? All nine of them. <laughs> <laughs> so you gave me a number. That's good. So peace, self-control, <laughs> kindness, <laughs> love. Good. This, this morning we came up with 11 when we were naming them off, so we'd somehow added a couple extra ones, and I can remember which was which. But uh, yeah, we want to be practicing the fruit of the Spirit. That will also lead to unity for sure. Uh, this thought kind of continues in Philippians. Let's go there together. It's the next book to your right. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So one of the results of us having fellowship of the Spirit, and that's just not fellowship with you in the Spirit, the concept there is fellowship but with one another together in the Spirit. The results there is same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We actually live on mission together. We're going after the same thing. All of us are trying to put the same ball in the same hoop. Okay? If you continue here, another natural result is do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. If we just figured that out, disunity is gone. Like when you say, I prefer this, and the person across from you says, I prefer that, and you say, well, I'm more committed to what you prefer than what I prefer, because Jesus tells me to, disunity is gone. When we're going out of our way to see who can give other people more things that they prefer than what we prefer, the whole world here at this church and any church radically changes. And that's standard Christianity. That's standard Christianity. That's like, if everyone else prefers something, I go out of my way to make sure they get what they prefer. And they're going out of their way to make sure I get what I prefer. It's almost like a wrestling match to see who gets what they prefer the most. But rarely do we actually function like that. Okay? But the, the piece there is with humility. Maybe we're not always as humble as we think we are. I have preferences, and sometimes I fight for my preferences too. So I'm, I'm as guilty as charged. But if we're really humble and we know who we are and who God is, and the most important thing to us is preserving the unity that the Spirit has provided, we quickly go to verses like this to memorize them and to remember them, to give of ourselves to make sure we're taking care of the brothers and sisters around us because we love them. All right, so again in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, just notice that it's said again, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you found out that you were going to lose any one of those three things, it should feel equally as devastating. If you found out that Jesus was taking his grace away from you, it should be devastating. If you found out that the Father decided he doesn't love you so much anymore, it should be devastating. If you found out that we no longer have fellowship with one another in the Spirit, 
that should feel devastating. So they're all of huge importance, okay? All three of them, the grace of Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship given to us in the Holy Spirit, all of those are huge, huge things. Well, let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I guess we were set up to do so. So let's go to Galatians. Chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, notice here that it's described as fruit, not separate fruits. It's not like you get this over here and then you do that over there. Like the whole thing in you kind of grows and changes together. Rarely do you find someone full of joy who has zero kindness. Like God's kind of working all those things out together, like one big piece of fruit, all right? Maybe it might look like grapes, maybe there's some separation, but like it, it's kind of like one big piece of fruit. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, In spite of suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So that's just an example of the Holy Spirit working something in someone that makes no sense unless the Holy Spirit did it. There is suffering taking place in Thessalonica, but even though there's suffering, they had joy given to them by the Holy Spirit when Paul brought his message. Like that doesn't make, like they're suffering. Like they should be anxious, stressed out, frustrated, asking questions, why Paul is this happening? But instead the response is joy that was given to them by the Holy Spirit. So when it says there that the fruit of the Spirit includes joy, here's a cool verse that says, the Holy Spirit gave them joy. You cannot produce this fruit on your own. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not the fruit of Mike. Like Mike doesn't grow his own fruit according to this. Like it's something that God is doing in us and through us, and he gets credit for it and glory for it. Okay, we don't get a pat our own back and say, do you see all that joy? Nicely done. Like, it, that's not how it works. Like, it's something that God is producing in us and through us. So he gets credit for it and glory for it. And our hearts are thankful because of it. Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So joy, trust, and overflow of hope come from the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now, Ephesians 5:18. This, let's just say this is a very important verse, but it's not an easy verse. You probably already know this verse, but oftentimes you were probably they were more focused on teaching you the first part of verse, the verse, not the second part of the verse. But today I want to focus on the second part of the verse. It says, "And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, dissipation." dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The second part of that is a command, be filled with the Spirit. And that verb for filled isn't like a one-time accomplishment. It's not like, get yourself filled up, good, you've accomplished and you fulfilled the commandment. This is the concept of being always and continuously filled with the Spirit. So it's an ongoing command. It's not something you accomplish in a moment in time. It's something that God calls to be true of us 
today, tomorrow, the next day, at 6 a.m., at 7 a.m., at 8 a.m., we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just be honest with you. This is a really hard thing, I think, to understand and to teach. Like, how do you just fill yourself with the Holy Spirit? Is there like a spiritual faucet above your head? So when you feel yourself drying out, you just like crank that thing on, fill it up again, and then turn it off when you're full? No. So what is it? So there's a couple things that I think we can include here in the process of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, there was a really good quote that I read. Because it's, it's not true that if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I have more of him now than I had before. Or if I'm a little more full than you are, I've got a little more Holy Spirit than you've got. Or if you're more full of the Holy Spirit, you've got a little bit more than me. I don't think it's like how much of him you actually have. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Sealed, delivered, completed, done. So one person said, so often the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't so much me getting more of him as much as me giving him more of me. Does that make sense? The concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit, one author said, it isn't so much that I'm getting more of the Holy Spirit as much as I'm giving the Holy Spirit more of me. So there's a couple of things that pop in my head when it comes to being filled with the Spirit. One, I think we pray to him to be more filled with the Spirit. We ask him to fill us. If he's commanded us to be filled with him, Holy Spirit, would you fill me today with your presence, with your power, with your leading Whatever is in my life that is hindering that, please remove it from my life. Please fill me. We know it's God's will that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit, so we know we're praying in line with God's will when we make that prayer. So I think prayer is one of the things we do, if not the first thing we do. Another thing I think we do, and again, this, this is just kind of an arbitrary list that I made up, so there's probably a lot of other things that I'm missing, but another thing I think we need to do is really kind of surrender ourselves to the Lord to whatever extent we can. Jesus, I'm yours. I know there's desires I have and things that I do that don't honor you. In fact, I might not even be thinking about you when I'm doing certain things. Change me, grow me, help me give all of me to all of you. Okay, so we kind of surrender ourselves to. Three, I think based upon what we learned at the beginning, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God go together. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to change us, and the Word of God changes us because the Holy Spirit is involved. Those two things go together. So another way to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of God. Like you jump in, you dive in, you learn it, you memorize it, you meditate on it, you know it cover to cover. There's a part that you don't know, you spend time in it because being involved with the Word of God is to be involved with the Spirit of God. The Bible puts the two together, okay? So we ask him to fill us. We try our best to put ourselves at his altar. Lord willing, he does that in us and through us to allow us to be able to do that, surrender to him. And to be filled with the spirit of God, we should fill ourselves as much as possible with the word of God. And I think those are ways that we can live out Ephesians 5, 18. Any other thoughts on that? What would you, is there something you would add to that? Something that popped in your head or a verse that you thought of? How do we continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit? I like to get up in the morning and say to God, today I'm your responsibility, take care of me. And all day long I'm aware hmm. that it is God 
taking care of me hmm. because I am his responsibility. It's not a cop out on my part. It's what he wants us to do. If we're surrendering our lives to Christ, that means going all in. That hmm. means that I am now God's responsibility to take care of. And the only person that stands in the way of him doing a good job is me. Hmm. I'm not letting him do it. Hmm. So I like being God's responsibility. That's good. So you do it by praying and giving yourself to God, recognizing that you are his responsibility and that he's the one who should live in your life and control and help you and grow you. That's good. Any other thoughts? Like I think they start this out saying, do not get drunk with wine. So what does that have to do with the second part of this? Yeah, what do you think? So what happens when I get drunk with wine? I lose inhibition, right? I become maybe more... Um, if I'm very reserved, I maybe lose some of that reservation. I become a little more um, open, relaxed, unhindered. And, and I think that's exactly what he's trying to say here is you don't have to drink to get to that point. You don't have to have a chemical in yourself to lose those things. Be filled with the Spirit and allow the Spirit then to, to freely do what the Spirit does, and, and, and what would be some of that? Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing, make melody. It's joy. It's this, I don't have to look or seek that joy from something that's going to have a significant negative downside. I'm filled with this, and allow that joy to just be expressed out of me mm. continuously. To me, that's, I mean, you hear this word happy drunk, right? That lasts for a while, then it gets like bad drunk, <laughs> when you see people who are drunk sometimes to an extreme. But this is, to me, it's, the, it's all the good of that, mm -hmm. being fully expressed, unhindered, to the praise, honor, and glory of the Lord. That's good. And let that to be, let, let that to be how people see you when they see you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when you, for the sake of the tape, to repeat what some of Matt said, um, the verse talks about the fact, and there's a comparison there intentionally between drinking too much and being filled with the Spirit. When you drink too much the alcohol influences you to the point where you do things you normally wouldn't do on your own. When you're filled with the Spirit in the same way, you're influenced in such a way that you might do things that you normally wouldn't do on your own. When you look at the book of Acts, oftentimes when you see them get filled with the Spirit, what usually happens? They share the gospel with boldness. They pray with faith. Like things around them get radically changed. There's one point where it talks about them being filled with the Spirit, and in Acts 4.31, the whole house shakes, okay? So being filled with the Spirit changes who you are and what you do and your perspective and grows your faith and you do things you normally wouldn't do without being filled with the Spirit. So we want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, so we've got five minutes and I've got about five pages to go. Go. <laughs> trying to think what I want to hit. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, and we're just going to touch on it, and there's some really fun stuff in here they are just not going to get through today, like the question of, is prophecy in tongues still something that happens today? Biblically, do we see this as something that goes away eventually, or is it something that sticks around? And if it sticks around, how long does it stick around? Does it stick around until the Bible was completed? Does it stick around until all nations have heard the gospel? Does it stick around until Jesus comes back? 
And if we say it doesn't stick around, then what's happening in all these churches where we see something happening? On the mission field. Now, in some of these churches, there are some crazy things happening. But there are in some churches just very normal people who experience, they would say, some of these gifts and use them in the way that the Bible says. On the mission field, there are times when you see the gospel going into villages and places where it has never gone before. And when that happens, oftentimes, these are reports that we get back all the time from the mission field, things happen there that you just don't see happen here. Like a missionary walks into a village for the first time and people start walking to their front door and opening it and saying, I dreamed about you last night. In the dream, I was told to listen to whatever you had to say. Would you come in? Can I make you dinner? Like, I've heard that story over and over again. So the Holy Spirit begins to work in the minds of people who don't know him, but it doesn't work independent of the word of God. It sets them up to be prepared to then hear the word of God and those blessed feet that bring good news show up in their village. And they're then invited in for dinner and they hear the word of God and become believers right there. So stuff like that happens. When I was in Mexico for a year, I swear when I went on campus, I could speak in Spanish so much better than when I was in the grocery store. When I was in the grocery store, I would walk out with the wrong stuff all the time, and I have no idea how much money I was supposed to pay them, but I always ended up giving them a lot of money. So, like, things went wrong all the time in Mexico when I was in the city, because I decided three months before I was going to go that I was going to go. That wasn't a lot of time to brush up on my Spanish, because I had to raise enough money in three months to actually go. So we just kind of showed up, and my wife spoke French. So if you think my Spanish was bad... Try mixing French and Spanish and they're just throwing it at people. Like, they're so confused, she's confused. All that to say, though, when I would go on campus, I swear I could start speaking in the past tense, in the future tense, not in like a crazy supernatural way, but just for whatever reason, God would help me take anything I had learned and I could use it. Where if I was in the grocery store, I swear, I just couldn't use it. Try going into McDonald's and your Spanish fails. Who knows what lands on your tray, okay? So, and that would happen over and over again. But when I was on campus, God would help me, okay? I think, I think that's an example of being filled with the Spirit. It didn't look like Acts chapter 2 or 3, where they got up and just spoke with great clarity, but like he would just help me some. And we would say that was true for lots of the people who were on our mission trip together. So God in those moments still, I think, works in special ways. Um, Do they always have to be charismatic? No, it might be you being able to actually share the gospel with your neighbor or friend. And that is you probably being filled with the Spirit that God's doing something extraordinary in you and through you for His glory by revealing His grace to those who don't know Him. So boldness is is a result of being filled with the Spirit. Prayerfulness, faith, believing God can do great things, all those things are results of Him filling you with His Spirit. Realizing there's a sin that you just want to get rid of and you finally get accountability and help. That's the Spirit working in you, okay? All those things. Uh, So at another time, maybe we'll get through some of these other concepts and those will be fun conversations. But I I didn't think five minutes would do it justice. So I gave you an overview. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for each person here. Uh, We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the fellowship that you give us with one another in you. May we be committed to preserving the unity that you have created. In Christ's name, amen.